So people try to remove their guilt by going to the resurrection and seeking to remove the reality of that resurrection. And when they do that, they think that they are no longer going to be standing before God guilty. And they're right because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in the passage we just read. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then your faith is in vain. So if, if you can attack the resurrection, if you can undermine the resurrection, if you can prove it to be false, then you are salving your own conscience, so to speak, so that you are no longer feeling guilty because all of the gospel unravels. And so we must understand that if someone is going to come and attack the resurrection, it's being attacked for a particular person. Paul says in this passage, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then... So there's a number of things that he lists. Now, this is not just a problem in our culture today. This is, um, this is something that has been... Uh, that is true just around the world. I, I this past week, thought, okay, I'm going to try something. And uh, having a computer and having Google was just a wonderful thing. And I typed in three words, um, resurrection, atheist, and denial. Do you think I came up with a lot of stuff? ton of blogs. And there was an interesting, a number of blogs were there for the s- specific purpose of undermining the resurrection, disproving Christianity with the goal of gathering a following of people who were once part of the church who have now abandoned the faith because they believe that the resurrection is just one big myth. So it's not just a a problem, I would say, in our local American culture even. It's even just around the world. What what I found, though, was there was this, this dishonest unwillingness to ascribe any authenticity to the biblical record as a historical document. Um, but not only is it a problem today, it's been a problem throughout history. Throughout history, there have been a number of different uh, theories that have been proposed as to what actually happened at the resurrection. We'll look at some of those in a little bit. But many skeptics and, and many unusual ideas and explanations for uh, what actually took place. Um, this, was, uh, this was also something that was true in Paul's day. And the reason we have this passage in the book of 1 Corinthians is because even in the early church, there were those who were saying, there's no resurrection. And so Paul is is answering that question. These are believers then who are actually proposing the idea or someone was teaching in the context of the church that there was no resurrection of the dead. So the fact that Paul takes time to address the question of the resurrection is evidence that to him and to the Corinthians and to all believers, the resurrection truly matters. This is an important subject. This is critical to the gospel. This is critical to the faith. And so uh, because of the resurrection and because it matters to Paul, he gives clarifying instructions to the Corinthians um, and then ultimately for us, and he is going to say really three things in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 19. Let me just give them to you. These are the headings, and you can kind of write them down and kind of see where we're going, but we're going to flesh these out together. We, we must, first of all, be willing to embrace the question of doubt. We must be willing to, to, to embrace the question, and it's really a question of doubt. You know, did the resurrection really happen? Is there a resurrection of the dead? The second one is we must be willing to face the facts and the facts that are given to us by the witnesses. Then we must be willing to consider the implications. And the implications of all this have eternal consequences. So we must be, first of all, willing to embrace the question, and that question is connected to doubt. We must be willing to face the facts, and the facts are given to us by virtue of these witnesses, and we must be willing to consider now the implications, and those implications will affect all of eternity. Now, what's interesting to me is that as God directed me to this passage, I wasn't thinking along these lines, but it's amazing that even the same theme that we've been studying through the Gospel of John Um, comes to bear here because Paul is giving us evidence and that evidence is supposed to do what? 
to lead us to belief, which ultimately results in life. And you find that this, this evidence is connected to life once again. And he's saying, look at the evidence. Now live your life for God's glory. So let's just jump into this first, uh, this first thing that Paul is saying we must do. We must embrace the question. Look at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The question Paul is answering is, is there a resurrection of the dead for Christ, for everyone? Now, three things that are very important here. We must not be afraid when people question the resurrection. We must not ignore the question. Just try and avoid it because it's too difficult. I mean, it's too, it's too hard for me to actually answer that question. I, maybe I don't know about it. Be careful because that's not what God wants for you. The third thing is don't get angry. Don't get upset because someone has questions about it or even is challenging it. You have to understand that in their heart they are battling against things. And if the resurrection is true, what does that mean? If the resurrection is true, then they have to listen. And if they have to listen, that means they have to listen to the gospel. And if they listen to the gospel, that means that they have to be accountable for their sins. And if they have to be accountable for their sins, guess what? They're either going to stand condemned, which they already are, or they're going to have to receive forgiveness. And so the the place that they want to go is, hey, undermine the resurrection, because then my conscience is going to be uh, clear. So don't be afraid. Don't ignore it, and don't get angry. Don't, Don't be like the pastor who really doesn't have any argument for the resurrection, so he has in his notes here, yell louder. In other words, as if yelling louder is going to make any difference. Yelling louder is not going to prove the resurrection. It's simply going to be yelling louder because you really don't have anything else to say. And sometimes that's how we respond as Christians, sadly, when we are posed questions. We may not know the answer. Ignore it. We're afraid of it. Or we just... You know, how dare you say something like that? You're attacking my faith. And oh, this it's a genuine question. It's a genuine question to say, how do we know that Jesus rose from the tomb? Now, people are looking for answers. They're looking for explanations to all the things that they're hearing. Some are saying there is no historical record for the resurrection. That was throughout blogs that I was reading. Oh, there's, there's no evidence that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. There's no historical documented evidence that that is true. Are there arguments and reasonings honest? Are they treating the evidence with integrity? It's a good question because they will pose it as if this is reality, this is truth. There is no data, there's no information. Now listen, if it's your goal to debunk something you don't want to be true, you will have a bias toward not giving credence to the evidence that is before you. That's true for all of us. The question is, are we honestly looking at the evidence? So if I present to you the evidence of the Gospels, you will say something like this if you're an unbeliever and you don't want the truth to be true. You'll say, well, you you can't believe the Gospel record. The accounts are fabricated. Or you might even say, many of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, even in the gospel accounts, they're women. And what we have here are the delusional dreams and visions of a company of women who, not willing to accept the death of their leader Jesus, came up with a story about his coming to life. I'm I'm summarizing stuff that I picked up on these different places. Contemporary writers who do not believe in the resurrection just just broad stroke away the gospel record. And they say, these aren't credible witnesses at all because they're, they're just delusional women who wish that their master would actually be coming back to life. Now, if we brought that kind of answer into a court of law, you actually might be, you know, might be considered hate speech or something like that because you're saying delusional women, right? I mean, it's an attack, but it's just kind of accepted. Oh, I was just all delusional. Really? Delusional? Huh. 
Interesting. Now, the question I think is important for us to ask is this. How can anyone prove the resurrection anyway? Now, I say that being technical here, but hear me out. If you can prove the resurrection, you'll be the first person. The reason being that the only, um, the only, I want to say, areas where we can prove anything is math and logic. You don't prove a historical event. What you do is you gather the evidence to show either the validity or what actually happened based on the witnesses and the data that you have. It's not a proof. It's a discovery, and it's an unveiling of the evidence and the facts that show this is actually what took place. So we don't have a responsibility to prove it. We have a responsibility to gather the evidence, to put it all together, to see what it looks like, and then say, aha, this must be what happened. Okay? So you cannot prove an historical event. Listen, this is, this is how a, an ordered society has always dealt with historical events. This is what happens, the reason why we establish courts of law. Now, they, they use the language in a colloquial sense. You know, I'm going to prove to you this is what happened. But you're not really proving. You're showing by virtue of evidence that these things took place and these things took place. You put them all together and you get a sense of understanding. Okay? So the resurrection is an historical event that is affirmed by a number of, um, I really say a plethora of witnesses and evidence to the fact that it actually took place. The best kind of evidence is an eyewitness account that actually saw what took place. Now, how many eyewitnesses were necessary in the Old Testament to find someone guilty of a serious crime? Anyone know? Two or three witnesses. Right? Two or three witnesses could mean that someone would be put to death. Now, is it always possible that a witness is going to be a false witness? Yeah, you hear about it all the time. So there is a sense in us that we almost get cynical about witnesses to some degree, right? But we need to be careful here that we don't get cynical about that as we look at our passage and our text and the account of the resurrection here. So two or three people were, who were there, who saw the events would be sufficient. Now, there, there's a, there are historical documents outside uh, the Bible, that can bring some general support to the historicity of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. But listen, it is the evidence of Scripture that gives the greatest corroborative data. And here, here is the first lie, and here's the first place that we retreat, and that is when people present you know, this, the argument, let's see, you know, the resurrection never happened. There really isn't any data out there. What they're saying is there's no data out there outside of the data of the Scriptures. It's all, oh, no, we know the Bible's not true. You can't, you know, you can't believe that. So now we have this other data that's going on. Okay? Now, I, I'm trying to lay a foundation to make sure we understand that it is important that we, we do not run away from the question. The evidence of Scripture is, I'm going to use three words here, valid, varied, and plenty. It's valid, meaning you can trust it. You can trust it in a court of law. You can take the narrative portions of Scripture, put them together, and you can come up with a scenario that would be established and valid based on the principles of a court of law. It is varied. There are a number of different kinds of testimonies, eyewitness accounts that are given to paint the picture from different angles. Listen, if something happened in here this morning and we, after this service, took an account, all right, maybe the, the beginning part where I started to preach and I wasn't supposed to, and, there, you know, and you would all go out, you would all give different accounts of the same thing that took place but from different angles, because you're looking at it, you're listening at it. Some of you may have been still finishing a donut, and maybe you had a coffee, or you were chasing after a child, or whatever, and all those things are data that comes into bear of how you saw it. So it's not all just this flat, same witness. They're different angles, and that's what we have in the Gospels. You have different angles, different witnesses, different approaches to the same circumstance. When you bring them all together, you're able to paint a picture. And you're able to see what truly took place rather than say, oh, these, these contradict each other. Well, of course, there, there's some apparent contradiction there because some of them are saying one thing from a certain perspective and 
you know, the other ones are saying something else from a different perspective, but they're not competing with one another, they're actually complementing one, one another. So that's how you view the data that is there. It's varied. The third thing, it's plenty. Um, unlike other historical documents, there are multiple copies of New Testament documents with, which corroborate each other. The, the historical data for the Bible, for the New Testament, um, is plenty compared to other historical documents. I mean, other historical documents may have like, you know, three or four copies. The Bible has hundreds, thousands, depending on where we're, we're talking about. There's just plenty of evidence. The problem is contemporary society says, ah, Bible, psh, just brush it aside. It really isn't valid. Now, it's a whole other subject, bibliology, but it is foundational to the argument of whether or not the resurrection is true because that's the first place people go. They do not accept the information and the data that we have before us in the pages of the Gospels in particular. So sadly, critics who don't want to hear the claims of Scripture the, uh, or face the implications of their sinfulness will write off the biblical evidence as lacking credibility, which is really just simply a lack of honesty. Yet their, their, their cynicism and their arguments can be intimidating. So there's now two points I want to make, and I, I, I want to kind of circle back and make them just to make sure that we understand them. Right? Number one, the validity of the gospel accounts and of all of Scripture does not rest on the support of, of outside or non-biblical sources. As God's people, we do not say, in order for me to believe a certain section of this, I have to have support from outside sources. Absolutely not. So th this being true is not based on some kind of outside sources at all. So don't be sucked into that thinking or, you know, that, that says we don't have any historical evidence to support the truthfulness of the resurrection. Yes, you do. It's right here. And it's been reviewed and studied and reviewed and studied. It's there. The second thing that I think is helpful for a central principle is this. Because the Word of God is the best recorded document in all of history, which I think is a very strong statement, we can be sure that the record of Scripture is reliable. And that's a whole study, but when you find out how many documents, how many parchments, how many papyri, uh, how many little fragments we have with the Word of God on it that are gathered together, that scholars put together to determine what, what um, you know, Greek was used and what those sentences actually say, all that is brought together. This is a huge body of data. It's really, really helpful to know all that to be tr uh, sh true so that we can be sure that the record of Scripture is reliable. That's what it's found out to be. Now, one example of that dealing more with the Old Testament was the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? I mean, for over a thousand, I think almost 1,500 years, um, these scrolls had been hidden in this cave. And what they did when they found them, they compared them to the actual data that we had and they found out, you know, this is almost identical. In other words, the preservation of God's Word has been consistent throughout time. You say, well, what's, why all of this? Why spending time here? Because I don't want you to be afraid of the question. I want you to embrace it. And when someone says, well, I don't believe the resurrection, don't be fearful. Don't be angry. Don't run away from it. Say, okay, let's talk about that. And the first thing, oh, we know the data of the Bible is not true. Really? You sure? Now, there, there is other stuff there, but we must, because we know the Word of God to be true, recognize that the Word of God is sufficient, accurate, viable data to show that the resurrection is true. We don't just throw it out and try and prove it from outside sources. This is significant. It is the significant historical data. All right? So that's the first thing. Now, Number two, we must be willing to face the facts. Um, I remember years ago going to a restaurant in Marshall, Michigan, called Shula's Restaurant, and it had a number of different sayings on the wall, and one of them was this. Facts are stubborn things. Facts are stubborn things. Now, they need to be true facts, right? But that's really, a fact is something that is true. Right, so there are falsehoods that are put up as facts, but facts are stubborn things. And what we're going to do today then is look at some of the facts, some of the data that we're giving, that Paul gives in answer to this question. We must be willing to face the facts. 
And the Apostle Paul um, tells the church to remember. He says, now I would remind you here in verse 1. He wants them to remember some things. And that's often how Paul counsels. That's often how God and his, his prophets or, his, um, uh, or the apostles will, will come to the church or to his people. They'll say, now listen, remember, 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 because this is stuff you've already been taught. This is stuff you already know. I want to remind you of it. And so if, you, if you're struggling with doubts and confusion, he's saying, remember, go back to the basics. Rest on the foundation of your faith, that foundation being the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So here are some facts that we want to begin. I'm going to put them in two separate categories here. First of all, the resurrection is foundation to the, foundational to the message of the gospel. Paul says in verse 1, Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He's saying, first of all, this is so foundational that this is what I preached to you. This is the message I preached. This gospel, which he's going to explain in just a minute, is this is the message, is the data, is the core of the substance that I came to you with. It is what you believe, it's what you received, it's what you stand on, it is what is now saving you. I didn't come to you with something else. I came to you with this particular gospel, and I preached it to you. Secondly, it is the message I delivered to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. And that's really important for us to see here. He's saying that the preaching of the gospel, which includes and is inseparably linked to the resurrection, is his priority, and that message is what he delivered to them. Now, not only that, the message, he says, that I delivered to you is not something I came up with. It's not something that that kind of was an idea in my mind that I brought into my preaching. It isn't the product of my thinking or of man's thinking. It is what was given to me by Christ himself, right? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And he's talking about receiving it from Christ. So this is is something that is rooted in Christ and his words. You might want to put it this way. Paul is saying, I'm simply passing on to you what I've been told by Christ, but now know to be true. And then there's the third thing. It's the message that is rooted in Scripture. That Christ died for our sins, what? According to the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's a beautiful study. Uh, We're not going to do that today, but the the Word of God uh, is, is certainly ripe with references that show us where Uh, Jesus is pointing to and where Paul is pointing to when he's making that statement. So the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not simply a historical event that we look back on. It is a historical event that's part of a greater redemption plan that goes back into themes and activities that were taking place as God was unfolding his his will through the Old Testament pages that ultimately are fulfilled in Christ. Okay, It's not just, boom, oh, you know, the leader of, of... of this sect group is now being crucified and he's buried and it just happened to be that way. No, this is all part of a plan, an unfolding plan that is culminated at the cross and affirmed through the resurrection. So the second thing then that, uh, that we want to see here about these facts being stubborn things is this. The resurrection is the capstone of the messengers of the gospel. So there's the message of the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection. This is what I preached. This is what I delivered, and it's rooted in Scripture. Now there are messengers that are going out with this gospel who are also eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ post-resurrection. And so Paul is now going to list for us um, a number of these particular people. And, and what he's saying here is this. The resurrection is the capstone. In other words, the, it's the crowning achievement in the gospel. Now think about that as we read verses 5 and following. That he appeared to Cephas. That's who? Peter, okay? Did Peter ever preach the gospel after this time? Absolutely, okay? Then to the 12. Did the disciples, were they part of the group of people that went out preaching the gospel? Absolutely. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers. We don't know specifically who they are, but we know that when Paul is writing this right now to the Corinthians, he's saying at one time, most of whom are still alive. So if you need to go talk to them, they're still around. Most of them are, all right? I mean, that's, that's the sense in which you have, to, you have to read this. I'm giving you this evidence. These guys are still around. Then he appeared to James. Was he a preacher of the gospel? Significantly in, in, in the, the city of uh, Jerusalem there, right? Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born. And that, by the way, that's a derogatory statement that Paul was accused of as being aborted. Um, he brings that in and kind of humbles himself in this list and saying, you know what, I wasn't part of that original group. I'm kind of, I'm kind of brought in. I'm kind of like the after effects because Jesus wasn't, or Paul wasn't a part of, of that. He, he had this unique interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Remember that? And then he actually was taken away by Christ and spent time with him, was taught directly from him. So it's kind of a different scenario with him. But he says, as to one untimely born here, he appeared also to me. So there's this appearance, 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 eyewitness, 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 eyewitness. And these people that are eyewitnesses are also ones who are turning around and proclaiming the truth of the gospel, which includes the subject of the resurrection. That gospel was a resurrection gospel. It was a gospel that was proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You read through the book of Acts, you'll see that. You know, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. You see that theme over and over and over again. It was the theme of the apostles. Right? So these are facts. And let's continue on here. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is at work within me. Whether then I, or whether then it was, it was I or they, so we preached and so you believe. So we preached and you believe. Preaching and belief. Preaching and belief. Now, here are some common explanations, secular explanations of the gospel. Okay? Not the gospel, of the resurrection. The first one is the swoon theory. You may have heard of this before literally means that Jesus fainted on the cross. That's what really happened. This is the answer so that you can understand what really took place. There really wasn't a resurrection. Jesus just fainted on the cross. He was taken to the tomb. The, you know, the stone was rolled, and he woke up in this tomb. You know, and and I mean, it's a serious theory. Um, this is what they believe. The 18th century, it kind of became really popular in 1965. Hugh... Seanfield um, wrote a, 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 a publication called The Passover Plot, and this, that's what he argued. Now, let's just think about this theory. At the cross, the centurion went to Pilate and assured Pilate that Jesus was what? Dead. Then a soldier pierces Jesus' side to ensure that Jesus was what? Dead, okay? He was put through a complex burial ritual, which means that Probably, right, the person you're preparing here is what? Dead. Okay, there's a common theme here, right? Um, Pilate, because he thought that there would be a claim uh, that Jesus would rise from the dead, set a guard to watch the tomb and set a seal upon the stone of the tomb. And, uh, of course, it said that the stone would take about 12 people to to move. So there's there's a lot of hurdles this theory has to get over. The fact that he fainted. Now, the common theme, though, you're going to find here is, oh, okay, but we, we, we're not taking the literal data of the Gospels as truth. We're just kind of coming up with an idea of how could someone be in a tomb and everyone not know that this person was dead. Ah, he fainted. Okay. Um, here's the, the second one, the theft theory. Who stole the body? Well, did someone steal the body? If they did steal the body, who was it? Was it the authorities? Okay, what authorities? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? If it was the Jewish authorities who stole the body of Jesus, the last thing they wanted was for Christians to go about saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. It's the last thing they would want. If it was the Roman authorities who stole the body, um, remember they had set a guard, and that guard was to guard the tomb, and a guard typically was somewhere in the region of maybe 50 to 60 men. 
And it would require that all those men who are guarding the tomb either didn't see the people stealing the body or the authorities come or they all fell asleep. And if they all fell asleep, they knew that if they fell asleep on the job that the penalty was what? Death. Okay, you see, these theories, they're, they're, they're ideas of what could happen. But when you look at the data that we're given, there's no way these things could happen. Okay? No one stole his body from the, Oh, the disciples must have come and stole, stole the body from the, That's Why would they give up their lives for something they knew was a lie? Why would they, why would they pursue something if it was really all fabricated, if they just stole the body? When confronted, you would think a normal person was like, no, okay, you know what, it was. Sorry, just kidding. <laughs> no. Here's the next one. The projection theory. This is a little bit more psychological. Basically, the disciples, uh, and, and the emphasis usually with this one is, is the women who give these accounts. Um, so much wanted for their master to rise from the dead that psychologically they, they have this this kind of experience that they actually believe that these things happened and they created this scenario. So it was all the, the, the psychological f- framework and mindset of the people who were followers of Christ that resulted in this story, this myth. Okay? The last one is the mislaid theory. Oops, we took the body to the wrong tomb. That's why he's not there. <laughs> you put him in the wrong tomb. Now, you know, I... I my, my goal is not to be sarcastic in all this, um, but this is a legitimate theory. Um, uh, Blake is the guy's name in 1907. First was the first one to kind of come up with this one, and he basically says that early in the morning, you know, it was it was early, it was misty, and you know they came to the tomb or to to the the cemetery, and all the tombs look alike. And and these women who were so delusional couldn't figure out which one it was. And so they went to a tomb that they thought is where the, he, you know, he was buried, and there was no one there. Ah, oh, he's risen from the dead. In fact, he, they asked a gardener, and the gardener says, oh, if you're looking for Jesus, he's over there. And taking a little bit of data from Scripture and kind of twisting it, right? Now, we just read, Steve read earlier from the book of Luke. And did you notice in there specifically it says they knew where the tomb was, they took the body to the tomb. They prepared the body. They, they knew where the tomb was. If you're going to embrace the data of Scripture, these ideas, these theories fall flat, completely, totally flat. In fact, you have to, you have to exercise a lot of faith, right, to believe that these things are true. Now, I just share those four with you just to say, you know, there's, there's just a lot of ideas out there that just, when they're compared to the data of Scripture, just fall completely flat on their face. Now, having said all that, um, I do want to mention to you um, that there are, there are a couple of examples of people who have studied the whole subject of the resurrection. Probably the more famous one, is, his name is Frank Morrison, who wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? Back in 1920s, he was assigned as a reporter to study the resurrection and to prove that it was not true. He went about studying the resurrection, and guess what? He was convinced that Every bit about it was evidence that pointed to the fact that Jesus truly was resurrected. And you, you, can, you can find that in a number of places through different people. But let's, let's just kind of pause there for a moment and just think. We must be willing to face the facts. How you avoid facing the facts is you take this and you set it aside. You deny the events, the facts that are recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. But what we've seen so far is that the, the resurrection is, is central to the gospel message. It is, it is what Paul preached. It's what he declared. It was from Scripture. It was also what these messengers um, saw. It was the capstone, so to speak, and it fueled their ministry of preaching and teaching. And that went out across, uh, you know, across the nation there um, based on, ultimately, the resurrection. This is Paul's argument. This is what he is saying for us right now. Now let's move on to this last one. We must consider the implications. We must consider the implications. But if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So if Christ did not rise from the tomb, then we have a big problem. That's what he's saying. Now there are actually six implications that Paul lists, but I want to put them in two different groups. I want to... Keep with this idea of preaching and believing. 
We find that a number of times through this passage, preaching and believing. So the first two have to do with preaching. If there is no resurrection, then preaching the gospel is pointless and dishonest. Let's just read it, find out what it says. And if Christ has not been raised, this is verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. You get that? In other words, the message of the resurrection, if Christ didn't rise from the tomb, means that we are not telling the truth about what God has revealed, and we are lying about that. We are misrepresenting him. Now, let's just think about this a little bit for a moment. When Jesus began his public ministry, what is it that was central to his work? You want to turn with me to the book of Mark. Just flip over to, to, to the book of Mark. We're going to look at a couple of passages in the Gospels here and just think through um, also what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. And look at Mark chapter 1, verse 38. Mark chapter 1, verse 38. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I, uh, why I came out. Jesus himself came to preach. You say, okay, um, can you give me an example of that? Absolutely, look at chapter 2 of Mark. This is the story of the palsied man that was born by four people, and they lowered him through the roof, right? Look at verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching what? The word to them. So Jesus himself was preaching the word. He was he was taking on this role and function of preaching, and the content of that preaching was the Word. Okay? Now, you remember what happened um, in that account. In that account, Jesus commends this palsied man for his what? For his faith. And he says, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. Now, a connection here between how you respond and the preaching of the word. That's what I'm trying to bring out here. So we have, this, Paul is saying, there's, there's preaching and there's how you respond. Now, what is it that Jesus told the 12 disciples to be doing? Look at Mark chapter 3 and verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to what? Preach. Now turn over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and, and we're going to work our way just through a, a number of verses here just to, to reinforce this. Here we have an example of this. And he, that's Jesus, called the 12. The word, verse, chapter 9, verse 1. He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim, caruso, that means preach the kingdom of God, and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not uh, have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, where they... Uh, when they leave you, that, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching what? The gospel and healing everywhere. So I'm just, I'm backfilling now into the gospels what Paul says the gospel is and saying this is what they did. They were, had this ministry of preaching just like Jesus. Jesus was preaching the word. He was preaching the kingdom. They're doing the same thing. They're preaching the word. They're preaching the kingdom. They're preaching the gospel here, okay? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, if there is no resurrection of Christ, if he has not been raised from the dead, all of that has been an empty endeavor. All of the apostles preaching and teaching, all of the instructions that Jesus gives, all of the, the guidance that Paul and Peter and uh, and uh, James gives us in the New Testament, all of it is empty, all of it is misrepresenting God, all of it's vain, it is foolishness. It's a waste of time. And all those people that are preaching that way are false witnesses to God. Now, friends, if there's one thing you don't want to be, it's a false teacher. It's a false witness. So in other words, if there is no resurrection, preaching the gospel is pointless 
and a dishonest endeavor. That's the, that's the implication. So Paul's saying, stay with me now. Here's the next one. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then embracing the gospel is empty and pitiful. This is the belief side of it. You had preaching, and now there's this belief, which I'm saying is embracing the gospel. It's empty, it's pitiful. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There's a lot of people you look at in this world that you actually do have pity for. You're driving down the street, maybe the person standing on the corner, maybe it's someone who's walking, you know, in a city kind of a con- context. We have a number of homeless people around, and you do drive by, and you see them, and you have pity on them. But listen, this is saying, if, if this is true, and you believe the gospel to be true, you are of most men to be pitied. Everyone's walking by you saying, Ah, I don't know why they even believe that nonsense. Now, let's put this into perspective. Thinking about Hebrews 11. The classic hall of faith chapter in the New Testament where we find this long list of saints, this long list of Old Testament saints who placed their faith in the promises of God that he would provide a perfect sacrifice a perfect Messiah. So men and women like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets put their faith in God's promise. All of that was empty. All of that's in vain. All of that's futile. And then there are listed in that chapter those who endured suffering, who endured torture, who endured painful death, because they believed the promises of God. They were commended because they put their faith in those promises that they had not received yet. That promise was of a Messiah. That promise was of a person. We find that ultimately in chapter 12, where Jesus is presented as the author and finisher of our faith. Right? So all of that was empty. All of that was in vain. Then we move into the New Testament, and we find that the, the, the apostles preached and taught, and the early Christians believed what the apostles taught, and they suffered persecution. They were, they were you know, in, in, in incredibly hard circumstances, and yet, if it is true that there is no resurrection of the dead, all of that faith, all of that preaching, all of that enduring, all of that suffering is in vain. It's empty. And then Jesus himself told his disciples what would happen. Look, if you would, please, uh, back in Mark, in chapter 8. We're just going to look at three passages here where Jesus basically repeats himself, but all through, through the gospel, as Jesus is interacting with the disciples, here's what he's saying. Mark, chapter 8, verse 31. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection in chapter 9. Look at verse 30 and 31. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Jesus foretells his death a third time. Look at chapter 10 now in verse 32 and following. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. The point is, this was not news when the resurrection took place. Oh, wow, Jesus was talking about this ahead of time. He was telling his disciples, but his disciples were like, what? No, that can't happen. In fact, Jesus tells one of them, get behind me, right? Because that's not going to happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. So Jesus is explaining these events. The resurrection is going to happen. Now listen, remove the resurrection. It's kind of like that game Kerplunk. Anyone have Kerplunk at home? 
You know, you put all these marbles and these sticks together at the top, and you pull one out, and the whole thing, all the marbles fall out. You pull out the resurrection, and listen, Christian faith just pours out. It's gone. So it's, no, it's, it's, not, a, a, it's not a surprise that people want to attack the resurrection, right? They want to pull it away. Take the resurrection away and all the promises, all the work, all the fighting for God's glory, all the standing strong in the face of opposition, all the growth, all the change, all the so-called new life, all your premarital counseling, all of your time before the word of God in an attempt to grow and to be Christ-like, all that is empty, all of that's pointless, all of that is vain. And he uses four words to really describe what that looks like. He uses the word futility, bondage, Hopeless and pitiful. You see that in the text there. Uh, it's just futility. It's, you're, you're, you're still in your sins, meaning you're, bond, you're in bondage. You're hopeless. You are pitiful. It's not a pretty picture, friends. Over 200 or 2,000 years of hard work for the glory of God and his gospel has been in vain. It's been a waste of time. Now, hear this. You cannot remove the resurrection from the equation and think that you still have Christianity. So you can't be like some liberal denominations or liberal churches and say, well, we really don't believe that Jesus was you know, a true historical figure that did all that. We don't really believe that he rose from the tomb. Then why even call yourself a Christian? Because that is core to the whole doctrine and understanding of what Christianity is about. So you, you, you cannot honestly deny Christ that he truly died, that he was buried, and that he rose again and claim to be a follower of Christ. It is a world upside down that is turned upside down by unbelief that is sophisticated in its mental wrangling. Oh yeah, we believe that he, you know, he didn't rise, but we still are followers of Christ. So what kind of Christianity is that? It's not Christianity. It's empty. And it happens because people are not willing to take the word of God seriously. They're not willing to take the claims of Christ seriously. They're not willing to face the facts honestly. They're not willing to understand the implications for eternity. But friends, thankfully, Paul is only giving a hypothetical <laughs> for the purpose of making a point. Now look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. There's a sense in which he's driving to this point. But, after all that, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So all these things that may be in vain, may be empty, may be in vain, all these things would be true if he has not raised from the dead. It's not like Paul is like, you know, panicking like, well, well you know, if he didn't rise, then, oh, um, then, then, then all our faith is in vain. And, and the preaching, he's not panicked at all. He's just making a point. And to make that point even clearer for us today, what I would like to do is to go back to those six things, turn them around as positives rather than negatives, and to leave us with an understanding as to why the resurrection is so significant and why it is worth it to listen to the preaching of the Word of God and to embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let's turn it around. We'll take these two categories, the preaching of the gospel and then also how we follow Christ. The preaching of the gospel is worth it. And again, here are two reasons. Number one, because preaching is vigorous, it's life-changing, it's powerful. That was the preaching of the apostles. When they started to go around and to open their mouths and to preach the truth of the gospel, it changed lives. It was radical. It was vigorous. It was life-changing. It's powerful. And listen, if, if, if I am going to be the guy who stands before you and to open up God's Word, my desire, and any pastor who is worth his salt, his desire is going to be a mouthpiece for God, not necessarily to bring his own ideas, but to reflect God's ideas. And so the, the gospel that we preach, the word that we preach, should be the word that the apostles preached. That's our goal. That's our passion is to find out if Paul is saying this, then I want to say what Paul is saying. I want to explain what Paul is saying. I want to explain what Jesus is saying because that's where life comes from. It doesn't come from me. It comes from the Word of God that is empowered by the Spirit of God. The second thing there is this. 
the preaching of, gospel, of the gospel is worth it because it faithfully represents God's revealed truth. When God's word is unfolded and unpacked for us as it really is, if it's done faithfully, we have confidence that God is speaking to us and this is what he says. We're not wondering whether there's a little bit of God speak in that. We, we recognize here's the word and here's what he says. And the apostles faithfully recorded and faithfully proclaimed what God said. So we also have confidence that God is at work through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, imparting understanding, grace, wisdom, strength, and confidence into the lives of his children. Another way to say that is this, that when true preaching takes place, preaching that keeps the resurrection central, God's people are fed and they are nourished in their faith. Now, guys, listen. Listen. <laughs> This is not about me. Understand, I may be the guy preaching, but this is why God's people need to love preaching, need to want to be under preaching, need to soak up preaching because it's God's method, which is foolishness to the world, but it's his method of communicating his truth to his church. And anyone who desires to step into this role must say, it's not about me, but it's all about him. And that's who I want to reflect in everything that I do. Because you need it, and if I were sitting down and someone else was preaching, that's exactly what I would need. We must believe that, and we can believe it, and we can rejoice over it that the preaching of the gospel is worth it. You know, what did Rod preach on this week? Well, he was preaching on the gospel again. I wish he'd kind of, you know, change hammering that same thing, you know. I understand that sometimes, you know, the same theme can be, you know, can be over and over again. But what, when we say preaching the gospel, we're talking about the word. We're talking about the content of what is there in the word. Now, that's the preaching of the gospel. Now, following Christ is worth it. It's not in vain. It's not empty, right? It's not something that, is, that you're still in bondage. There's a number of things here I think are very, very helpful for us to recognize. Following Christ is worth it, first of all, because when we follow Christ, our faith is well-founded. Now, it's well-founded, yes, on, uh, on a historical event called the resurrection, but it's not simply one obscure event that took place in the past that is the basis of our faith. It is the plan of redemption, and that plan of redemption includes a person that we put our faith in. So Jesus ultimately is the foundation of our faith, right? And what happens to him is simply the story of that redemption, but the fact that the resurrection took place is a fact that seals or affirms that what Jesus has done actually has uh, accomplished its purposes in me. So when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our faith in that person, there is someone we can trust, absolutely. There's someone we can put our faith in, and it won't be empty. It's someone who won't let you down. It's someone who will always be there for you because... Christ is risen, we can say with the Apostle Paul, this is Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So following Christ is worth it because our faith is well-founded. It's not empty. There is substance in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the next one. Following Christ is worth it because our sins are forgiven. Anyone here thankful that their sins are forgiven? All right. I mean, do, do, you, do we understand what that means? And we talked about it last week, but, but do we really understand the implications of they've been removed? They're gone. Now, I realize every day, you know, we have sins and we need to keep short account, but as far as my eternal relationship with God is concerned, they are gone. My sins are forgiven. I'm not in bondage anymore. Now, you might say, how is the resurrection connected to our forgiveness? Isn't it the death of Christ that takes away our sin because he bore our sins and took our judgment? That's what we looked at last week, and the answer is yes. But the connection of the resurrection is important. So turn to the book of Romans just for a minute. Book of Romans. I just want to throw out one verse for you to see. Romans chapter 4. And uh, just kind of explain it a little bit, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of let you do some more study on this. Romans 4, verse 25. Um, he, we'll say Jesus here, was delivered up, that means put to death, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, right there, in, in just that one verse, Paul brings 
Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection together as part and parcel for what was necessary to accomplish our salvation and our justification. Let me put it this way. Through Christ's death on the cross, our forgiveness is accomplished. We're now reconciled. We're redeemed. Our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is removed. And we are declared right with God. Through Christ's resurrection, our forgiveness is validated. And Christ's work is vindicated. So there's a sense in which when Jesus rose from that tomb, he had already accomplished what needed to be accomplished on the cross. He died as that sacrifice once for all, right? But when he rose from that tomb, it was a validation that this is true and this is for you. And what God said he would do, he did in the person of his son. Because of that, we have confidence that we are made right with him. That's the idea of the word justification. So friends, we're, our, our faith is well-founded. Our sins are forgiven. Here's the, the, the next thing. Our, our destiny is heaven. When we get to the end of our days or we stand over the grave of a loved one who has died in Christ, we have the wonderful prospect, and we can say this, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. We only have that confidence if the resurrection is true. We have the, the sure prospect of heaven. And friends, that theme is throughout the Gospels. It's throughout the writings of Paul and Peter. This, this idea of, of having one foot, so to speak, in, in the kingdom that we are citizens of, but also having our feet right here in this world. And because that is true, because we have the prospect of heaven, friends, hear this, we don't fear death. We may fear dying. I mean, I don't... I don't I don't look forward to maybe the pain and the agony and the struggle of, of you know, saying goodbye and, and just the physical side of it. But, but death is not something we need to fear because we know that it is simply a passageway into eternity. And we have the promise because of the resurrection that there is victory over death, right? That's why he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? We have Christ and we have the resurrection, that gives us that victory over death. And so the certainty about our hope is the certainty about our place in heaven. Death is not our concern anymore, but life, an abundant life, an everlasting life. Now here's the last one. Following Christ is worth it because we are to be most envied. Now you may not believe that, but I want you to think through it this way. People may scoff at your faith. They may ridicule you for what they perceive to be simple-minded weakness on your part in your embracing of some kind of a religious crutch. But friends, the truth of the matter is this. When we have confidence because of the resurrection, it changes our outlook on life. I've just talked with a few of you this morning that have talked about how your outlook on life has changed because of Christ. Circumstances you've gone through and how God is teaching you through those circumstances to look at life afresh. We begin to see life from a different perspective. We see that we're citizens of a kingdom. We see that we are now temporarily sojourning here. We are ambassadors for Christ here until he calls us home. And so, like Paul does, we can confidently say with joy, with joy 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Everything we suffer, everything we endure here is simply a preparation for eternity. Our struggles on earth are preparing us for glory in heaven. So understand this, that behind those attitudes of ridicule and scoffing and mocking and, and however it comes out, there is this attitude of envy that longs for the confidence and the joy and the life that we have in the gospel. People are longing for answers. They may not reveal it. They may not say it. But if you are a follower of Christ, you are a person to be envied. Now, Jump down to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Here's the whole reason why Paul is even bringing out this truth. He tells us why he takes so much time to explain and examine the importance of the resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Friends, the preaching, the teaching, the explaining of the resurrection is not supposed to be an academic endeavor simply for academic purposes. And I know that we've laid groundwork here. We've talked about data and all that kind of stuff. But hear this. The reason we need to be confident in the resurrection is because when we are not confident in the resurrection, it affects how we work for the Lord. It affects our ability to be steadfast, to be standing firm, to be abounding. That means ever working and growing and rejoicing in the things that we have because of the gospel. It is because of the resurrection that we can celebrate today not simply an event, but celebrate a life that we have in Christ that has been verified and affirmed and validated by the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, we can serve him with vigor, vitality, and purpose and do it for his glory, being confident that it is true. Help us, Lord, today. As we just soak up all that we have looked at today, Lord, I, th- I thank you that the Corinthian church was struggling with this subject. I thank you, Lord, that someone was questioning whether or not it was true that Jesus rose from the, from the dead or, or whether the, the, the dead who are in Christ would rise again, whether there would be a resurrection because, Lord, you have allowed us to, to, to see and to, to frame an understanding of the resurrection from what Paul has said. The resurrection, Lord, is so foundational to our gospel and to your gospel. Lord, the message we have is fueled by the resurrection. And Lord, we are not people who are living lives that is, are lives of vanity and emptiness, but they're lives of purpose. And Lord, we are celebrating today, Lord, the resurrection, what you have done and the life that we now have because of you, demonstrated, sealed, settled because of your resurrection. Strengthen us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit as you wish. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.